0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, it's time for you to roll for initiative.
0: All right. Here we go. Ha ha! Rolled a natural 20.
1: I think that's going to give you a very good film review as we are talking about this week's new release. Listeners, we are going to be discussing Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves.
0: Yeah, we're going to let our RPG-loving freak flags fly there in the first segment. We're also going to offer a good old dose of old-school adventure with our watch list pick, where we're going to be talking about 1998's The Mask of Zorro
1: sounds like we've got a lot of swords ahead of us so Kevin on guard on this episode episode 376 of seeing and believing
0: truth be told we helped the wrong person steal the wrong thing we didn't mean to unleash the greatest evil the world has ever known but we're gonna fix it so how do we pull that off? Uh, Figure it out over a drink? Probably best. We're here on episode 376 of Seeing and Believing, and I'm excited about this episode for a couple of reasons, Sarah. One of which being that, just like our Lord of the Rings episode that we recorded last fall, this is a rare opportunity for you and I both to let our nerd flags fly. As if People couldn't already tell from that uh, intro that we just had. <laughs>
1: yeah. I have um, a sword of plus three nerdery, and I am ready to use it on this review.
0: I'm I'm going to pull all of my movie opinions out of my bag of holding right here. Uh, it's good thing that it's infinite space, because I got a lot of them. And we're going to <laughs> bring that to bear on our discussion of the new Dungeons & Dragons movie. So this is titled Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. It was co-directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein and written by them with the help of Chris McKay and Michael Gilio. And it's the latest attempt to take the freewheeling DIY storytelling potential inherent in the Dungeons & Dragons universe and shape it into a good movie for once. This one gives <laughs> us Chris Pine as Edgin the roguish bard, and Michelle Rodriguez as Hulga the barbarian as they try to pull off a heist to bring low the man who betrayed them, kidnapped Edgen's daughter, and joined forces with an evil wizard. In the finest D&D tradition, though, this involves putting together a motley crew of adventurers and making time to hunt for magical artifacts and powerful weapons to say nothing of dust-ups with low-level guards and high-level monsters. So, Sarah, like I mentioned earlier... Uh, you know, we do both have our fair share of experience with uh, role playing games. We both know our way around a D20. So mm-hmm. to get us started, I'm really curious to know what you think about this movie, specifically from the standpoint of a fan, at least of role playing games, if not Dungeons and Dragons specifically. Do you think that Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves captures the spirit of d d
1: Oh, yeah, it does, actually. And I am i feel like I'm probably the most surprised to say that out of anybody, because as you've mentioned, like, this is an attempt to make a good D&D movie for once. I've seen a couple of the other D&D movies and they don't exactly work. And I think that's because they're trying a little bit too hard to lend a sense of like awe and dignity to something that is inherently a little bit ridiculous. Um Anybody who's played Dungeons and Dragons or other similar like tabletop role-playing games knows you're going to get a little bit silly. You're going to get a little bit digressive. There's an opportunity for everybody to argue over the rules and what actually happened there. Um, and then there's also an opportunity for people to play as something that they are not up to and including silly voices. And I'm not really much of the silly voice using Dungeons & Dragons player. I do like a game that gives its players the opportunity to both be silly and to also um, have some fun playing with like world-ending stakes potentially. And I think the fun part about Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves is that it does a pretty good job of balancing the amount of humor that it's trying to get across with those stakes as well without taking everything too, too seriously. So I had a lot of fun in the theater. I'm curious to know, Kevin, if this worked for you as much as it did for me.
0: I had a, I had a lot of fun with this movie too. And I think that one of the things that attracts me about tabletop role playing games is the, the way that it permits a group of people to build a story together and specifically the experience that that gives you of having just the sense of discovery that you're all kind of discovering a story Mm. together and you're making it up as you go. And that leads you into some pretty ridiculous places sometimes. And there are, you know, subplots that might get dropped as the, you know, the, the group gets interested in other things, or there, there might be some leaps of logic that don't quite make sense to anybody except your dungeon master. But, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the charm of it. And I think Honor Among Thieves gets that. I had a strong hit of, of hey, it's me, when there's a scene where the party is, you know, they, they're trying to cross a bridge, the bridge crumbles, and so now they're trying to figure out how to get across this chasm with lava at the bottom, and they go digging through their packs, pulling out whatever random stuff they can find in there, just to find a way to solve that problem. And that is that's Dungeons and Dragons to a T is just trying to improvise your way through a a bad or dire situation. And I think <laughs> this movie this movie gets that about about mm-hmm. the universe and I think that that helps it have this loose improvisational feel itself in you know to be fair, I don't know that that entirely leads to a a story that feels fully cohesive as you know as, as drama necessarily but i do think that it's going to please the the fans who are going to go see it and that's kind of the main reason that a lot of people are going to be seeing this and i think those who go into this not really having any sort of relationship to dnd are still going to have a good time with it uh largely due to you know the cast just makes it go down smooth and uh i, I think that's a testament to the the performances and and the easygoing direction of it all
1: yeah yeah and i think i mentioned the balance between humor and you know world-threatening stakes but i think another um, thing that this movie does pretty well is it's able to balance the level of combat versus the level of puzzle solving so um D players will know what i'm talking about for those who do don't play DD. and uh, there are a couple of different play styles and some of them involve just fighting your way through everything you meet. And then another play style is characters who will try to um, solve a problem or solve a puzzle without resorting to violence. And I feel like this movie does a really good job of mixing it up a little bit. Every single scene, there's something that our band of intrepid heroes must figure out there's an obstacle that they've got to get over. There's a puzzle that they have to solve. And every single time they solve it, it does feel a little bit loose and improvisational, which is kind of the nature of the game to begin with. I feel like people who are good at improv tend to be pretty good at d d as well, because you're essentially taking um, a list of tools and a list of rules and you're pouring them all out on the table and you're trying to build a story out of a bunch of disparate parts. And part of the joy of playing the game itself is you're doing that with other like-minded creative people. And I really enjoyed watching all of these different characters get creative with the different things that they were trying to solve. I feel like every good D&D campaign ends up involving some sort of a heist. And so we get a little bit of notes of heist in here as well, where characters need to get a hold of a magical item. And the only way that they can do that is to use the tools and the resources that they have creatively in order to be able to get to that point. At the same time, I mean, I think this is something that is satisfying for me as someone who enjoys playing Dungeons & Dragons. But at the same time, it feels as though this movie is full of references to the game without feeling the need to explain every single one of those references or even name them. So one of the joys of watching the film was seeing characters do something and recognizing like, oh, that's a spell that I would have used if I were playing the game at this moment, but the movie doesn't really comment on it. It doesn't really feel the need to linger on it. I kept thinking in my head, almost back to um, Steven Spielberg's ready player one and how that movie was just so referential and felt the need to draw attention to every single one of the references and Easter eggs that it was laying out for its audience. Because um, the point of that movie is that you have to be able to collect all of those references. And the more of them, you know, the more that you're going to get out of it. Here, I think Honor Among Thieves isn't interested in collecting references. It's interested in giving the audience a scenario and showing a group of characters figure their way how to get out of that scenario or get into that scenario or get what they want out of that scenario. And if you understand the reference to the original game, That's all well and good, but you don't need to know it in order to be able to get the enjoyment out of it. Like D&D is basically a tool set that allows you to tell a story. And the fun part about this movie is that it's interested in telling that story without drawing too much attention to those tools that it's using in order to tell that story, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that uh, comparison to Ready Player One isn't one that occurred to me while watching this movie, but I think it is a a very apt one because... Ready Player One, um, both the book and the movie, kind of struck me as an exercise in, in reference getting. And mm-hmm. your enjoyment goes up with the number of references that you are excited about understanding. And uh, this movie, there are a lot of references that, if you aren't well-versed in D&D lore, you won't understand. There's you know, allusions to tensions between humans and tieflings. There's certain creatures that we kind of just barely get a glimpse of and never come up again. There's all sorts of things that are hinted at, but at least for me, you know, I don't know that I got every single one of those references, but it didn't really matter so much. I I felt like rather than constraining the entire universe to a list of references that you either understand or you don't, it kind of gave you this universe... And they're little Easter eggs that if you are a super fan, you can pick out and enjoy. But if you're not a super fan, it's more giving you the sense of possibility that there are these other things that you didn't quite get, but form part of a larger picture that you may or may not be interested in exploring further. And I think that's kind of the difference between uh, Honor Among Thieves and a reference fest like Ready Player One, where the, the storytelling mechanics... In honor among thieves are solid enough that even if you aren't the sort of the reference getting sort you can still have a good time with it and i i think that that's just that that's part of its charm even though it is like you said seat of your pants storytelling it does Mm -hmm. feel like you you can have a good time with it regardless of whether you're fully bought into that mode of storytelling
1: yeah, and it's interesting, and I'll be curious to know your thoughts about this as as a fellow person who enjoys role playing games. Um, so there is a concept of railroading when you're when you're playing a role playing game. Usually, there's one person who is directing the story, keeping it more or less on track, giving the other people who are playing the game, you know, objectives or some somebody to bounce off on. And when you're playing a role playing game. There's this concept of railroading, which is that the person who is directing the game is trying to funnel everybody towards a common goal. And there's only one way that they can do that. And they have to try to figure out how that works. It feels like it's a a mode of storytelling that's very much on tracks. It's not very fun to play because the point of these kinds of games is to go exploring and for everybody to build a story together. And so... I think that this movie does a good job of capturing that sense of possibility where I think it falls short a little bit is in the plotting, like the overall general call to adventure and then resolution felt a little bit um, underwritten to me in a way that almost felt as though the story was sort of on rails as in, I saw the call to adventure. I understood who these characters were. I had a pretty good idea of where they were going to end up by the end of the movie once they had been introduced to me. Did you get that sense?
0: I think there are elements of the plotting that uh, work <laughs> less well than others. The The basic impetus for the the main heist is, you know, Edgins' daughter has been taken under the wing of you know, Hugh Grant in full, full on, you know, oily, threadbare, snake oil salesman mode. You know, anyone who's seen his frankly delightful turn in Paddington 2 will recognize kind of him working in the same kind of mode here as well. And I love Hugh Grant in that mode. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, The, the, the sort of, specifics of that plot which do revolve around Edgen's daughter and her not trusting him and kind of this this family dynamic that they have is not the most interesting it it feels a little bit rote um Mm -hmm. which given that so much of the other plot points in the movie are very colorful and very strange uh you know those parts did feel a little bit like a letdown but I do think there are some other little bits of business that the film lets itself get into that I thought worked really well, frankly, better than they had to. And a lot of that is, again, going back to the, the loose storytelling feel. I'm thinking specifically of a short scene where Holga kind of has to go back to uh, her old life before she and Edgin got betrayed and sort of get some closure with uh, an old flame of hers. It's a it's a very fun scene for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to give away some surprise casting for that scene. Mm-hmm. But the the nice thing about it is that it, it doesn't just kind of take us off on a rabbit trail that's actually kind of interesting and makes Holga a more well-rounded character. But it's also just kind of, it, it gives her, it gives Michelle Rodriguez some notes to play that... The movie didn't have to get her to play you know you can easily imagine a movie like this that's just so focused on fan service that it's just kind of like okay we got the barbarian we'll give her a bunch of fight scenes we've got the bard we'll give him a bunch of you know roguish scenes uh we've got the you know a sorcerer we'll give him a bunch of magic using scenes and that's the point kind of reducing the characters more to their roles in the party which to be fair that is also kind of a time, time-honored and uh, tradition sometimes is kind of just seeing yourself as having a job in the party. Mm-hmm. Where I think Honor Among Thieves kind of goes above and beyond is it doesn't think of them as just role fillers in a party. It, thinks of, it, it tries to conceive of them as fully fleshed out characters. Some of the ways that it goes about flushing them out are less successful than others, though. I, I would agree with you there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that scene, because that scene felt like one of the most, you know, side quest, (laughs) off to the side sort of moments for these characters. And I thought it was fine. It felt a little bit extraneous and then I had to remember that that's part of the joy of D&D is going off on those tangents with other characters and kind of getting to discover the other characters as people are playing them. Like the point of D&D is to sort of create and discover something all at the same time together with other people as they're developing those characters for themselves too.
0: Yeah, uh, maybe we can uh, take this opportunity to talk about some of those performances of these characters. Because, you know, I I don't think we've made any secret that you and I are pretty big fans of Chris Pine, even though we didn't much care for Don't Worry Darling. We both liked him in that film. Uh, We've liked Mm -hmm. him in other roles as well. Um, And he is definitely kind of the, the central figure of this plot. I've also said some nice things about Hugh Grant. But maybe we can get into some of the supporting characters, too, because also... Uh, in the best tradition of D&D, you know, everybody kind of gets their moment to shine a little bit.
1: So Mm -hmm. maybe we can
0: talk a little bit about those moments where they do get that opportunity.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, for me, the the central two characters, kind of the two driving characters at the at the center of the action are Chris Pine as Edgin and Michelle Rodriguez as Holga. I actually thought these two had pretty solid, like friendly chemistry with each other, which was enjoyable to watch the two of them kind of bounce off each other because they're playing two very different characters. He's kind of a bard. She is definitely a barbarian. And the way that they kind of bounce off each other made for some fun and interesting, you know, contrasts between the two of them. They each get their chance to, to shine Him as being sort of the, I don't know, comedic Chris Pine type of character that he sort of shot to fame with um, as he was playing uh, James T. Kirk in the Star Trek reboot movies. And it was really nice to see him back in that mode again, a little bit more comedic, a little bit more um, kind of undercutting himself a little bit. And also, um, fun to watch Michelle Rodriguez have fun with the role as well. I know her best from Lost and from the Fast and Furious movies, and for both of those characters, she's just kind of playing sort of one-note heavies or one-note toughs. And here, she's definitely playing a brawler, but she's given the opportunity to kind of Bring a little bit more of that comedic tone to the forefront here as well, and that bounces off Chris Pine's character in some fun and interesting ways too. I
0: I want to give a shout out to uh, Roger Jean Page uh, mm-hmm. also as a uh, for his supporting role as uh, basically a lawful good character. You know, kind of the the sort of straight arrow that is of course going to chafe against our band of of rogues and thieves, but who mm-hmm. also is just. So unabashedly heroic that you can't help but like him as well. I, I really liked how Paige was able to thread that needle where he is kind of this, you know, this oblivious do gooder, but he's also just. He, he's both awesome and funny and, and annoying all at once. And I think that it's not easy to sort of play that sort of very white bread kind of character with such. Uh, such aplomb, and, and I really enjoyed him in this as well.
1: And the fun of that character is that the movie plays him completely straight as well. It doesn't feel like there's too much winking or nodding, at least from him. Like, there's absolutely not an ironic bone in this character's body. He is completely going to follow everything by the rule book. And that's going to irritate the other characters around him. But that's just who he is as a character, which I had a lot of fun watching, too.
0: Yeah, I I think it's safe to say that we both had a lot of fun watching this movie. And I'm curious to know, any of our listeners out there who have had a chance to catch up with this movie over the weekend, what they thought of it as well. Uh, Listeners, if you've had a chance to see Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, and you also want to let your nerd flag fly a little bit, we're, of course— all about that, you can tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter, email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or visit us over on Letterbox at cbelievepod uh, and let us know your thoughts on this movie, how well you think it captures the spirit of D&D, and whether you had some, some other nuggets that you found particularly enjoyable as a fan or maybe even as a non-fan. We're very interested in hearing your thoughts. But we are going to sort of back off a little bit from the noodle-armed nerdery of (laughs) this entire segment and get into some more, like, good old-fashioned swashbuckling with our watchlist review of The Mask of Zorro coming up in a bit.
1: So now we're going to get into the conversation, which Kevin is usually the part of the show where we hear back from listeners who have sent in their thoughts about the movies that we've reviewed or the other topics that we've discussed on the podcast. This week, we didn't actually have any feedback, but that's okay because I had another conversation with somebody else who is also involved with the making of Seeing and Believing. I spoke to our producer, Jonathan Clausen, about the movie Rocky, which is going to be going up on our Patreon feed shortly if it isn't already out there when this podcast drops.
0: I'm, I'm really excited to listen to that episode when it finally does go up. Jonathan is a returning co-host for our Patreon-only feed. He recently, or not so recently, I guess it was longer ago than I thought, but uh, it <laughs> seems like yesterday that uh, he and I had the chance to sit down and talk about Marvel's Eternals for, the, mm. for our Patreon subscribers. And I'm really curious to... Listen to your look back at Rocky and see and find out, you know, were there fisticuffs? Was it did it end in in hugs? I'm very curious to know.
1: We were pretty simpatico, I think, although you'll have to listen to the episode to see where we landed on Rocky. Neither of us had seen it before this month. So this was kind of a new to us watch And uh, we were both curious about it coming out of our review of Creed 3, which we reviewed here on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. Um, But listeners, if you support our Patreon at any level, you too can listen to that episode and find out whether or not Jonathan and I came down positive on Rocky or if we want to go in for another round with him um, some other time
0: yeah, and for any listeners who aren't patrons, but thinks that that sounds pretty great. It's not too late for you. You can always become a patron uh, of seeing and believing. You go to patreon dot com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, and become a, a, a patron at any level. That'll get you access to these Patreon-only episodes that we've just been talking about. Uh, there's some pretty popular tiers, but for as little as $5 a month, you can get in on that action and hear Sarah and Jonathan get into the ring and spar a little bit. Should be a good time.
1: So now we're going to go into the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not yet seen, and we watch it, and then we come back and we discuss it right here. So, Kevin, to pair with Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, I think you were thinking action on the brain, so you chose 1998's The Mask of Zorro, directed by Martin Campbell. Don Diego de la Vega, played by Anthony Hopkins, is a nobleman who fights against injustice under the alias Zorro, dressed in black and wearing a mask. And just when he's about ready to hang up his sword for the final time, Zorro is outfoxed by his enemy, a corrupt governor named Rafael Montero, played by Stuart Wilson. After 20 years of imprisonment, Zorro manages to escape And he's too old to play the hero anymore, so he takes on a protege, Alejandro Morietta, played by Antonio Banderas. Morietta must learn swordplay, spycraft, and some sort of state intrigue if he is to help Diego de la Vega take down his old nemesis and earn the right to wear the mask of Zorro. So, Kevin, I'm curious to know, um, this is a movie that uh, I know that you like quite a bit, and I'm curious to know what about this movie kind of fulfills your need for adventure?
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, when when I saw that we are going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons, I was thinking about, you know, what to pair with it, and I was just thinking about going on an adventure. That's sort of what D&D is all about. And I feel like it's sort of an art that big-budget blockbusters these days aren't as good at giving us, or at least they they aren't good at giving me the kind of adventure that I kind of enjoy uh, in, in an old-school way. I think about, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or, you know, the the old swashbucklers of the of the thirties and forties. And this movie I think encapsulates just what I like about just a good solid adventure story where it's not complex. Um it's it's wears its heart on its sleeve. It's not really trying to be Ibsen, but I think there's something truly satisfying about watching a caped hero just save the day without the help of superpowers or computer-generated uh, physics or anything mm. other than his own ath- his or her own athleticism and uh, roguish charm, I guess. And it also turned out to be the 25th anniversary of the mask of Zorro. So it seemed like time. So I'm, I'm really glad that we got a chance to talk about it. And, uh, I'm curious to know, do you think that it was worth catching up with after a quarter century?
1: Oh yeah, it definitely was. Um, I sat down to watch this movie and had a smile on my face for most of the runtime. I don't know what I fully expected, Um, Other than, you know, swashbuckling adventures and Antonio Banderas, who I will watch in just about anything. But he is just so charming here. I think for me, the revelation was just the movie's willingness to take its time with these characters and to frame them in interesting ways. And this feels like a throwback, partly because it is a fairly simple tale of, you know, Black hats versus white hats um, fighting each other over justice or injustice. Like there's, there is a strong theme of revenge and then also justice for the people who are being oppressed by the noblemen in this story. Um, but there's also a good sense of framing and artistry just in the way that the Images are framed. It's very basic. It doesn't, like you said, this isn't Ibsen. This isn't necessarily like a Tarkovsky movie. And it doesn't need to be because what it's trying to do is just kind of push on those buttons that say, like, yes, I would like to go on an adventure with these characters. And they're all very larger than life. And the movie frames them as such. Um, there's a lot of very straightforward framing where everybody's just in the right in the middle of the camera Um, I think there were a couple of moments where they're basically looking down the barrel of the camera, but they look larger than life and they look like they're having fun while they're doing it, even though they're struggling for survival in some cases. Like this is a world that I liked spending time in and that I think I would have liked to be in. So I was happy to have kind of that window on a sense of adventure that really did feel like something that was tactile and that I could actually like reach out and feel and touch. I I really enjoyed that experience.
0: I'm really glad that you, you liked that. And I think that tactility is part of its charm. And, and and the tactility is interesting because it's, it's got a texture that feels very old school, just in the way that Martin Campbell uh, just conceives and realizes some of these sequences on screen. So the very first sequence we get, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, Zorro's last exploit, or at least Anthony Hopkins's Zorro's last exploit, where he's you know going to save uh, some innocent people from a firing squad. You know he he does lots of daring do as as you would expect. There's there's sword play. There's you know rushing about on on horses, and at the end of it all, uh, he he jumps on his faithful steed and he. He rides to the top of a wall and of course he he you know, he rears back on on the steed's hind legs, waves his sword in the air in front of a sunset, and then he rides off camera and the way that Campbell shoots all of that, it feels like it, it's on a sound stage almost like it it mm-hmm. it feels very much like an intentional callback to the days when an adventure film like this would be shot on the sound stage. it wouldn't be shot. On location, there would be sets. And the artificiality, I guess, is part of the charm. And gives it all kind of the sense of play. Like, Zorro does kill people. There are people getting shot and and manhandled and all all sorts of stuff. This isn't a violence-free movie. And there's revenge and and some darker elements. But because it's sort of um, presented in this way where the artifice is sort of... It's being it's it's not trying to hide that in any way it feels much more like it's it's a it's a way for the audience to sort of engage and play with with the idea of it so you know the you you get the sense that even though zorro stabs somebody that person you know the the actor is going to get up and walk off set you know after <laughs> the director calls cut and i think that's part of the charm of these movies where the stakes are high but not astronomically so and the violence is serious But it's presented in a way where the artificiality is close enough to the surface that you don't feel you don't feel genuinely harrowed by it. And I think that there's a place for that as well in some good natured entertainment.
1: It almost feels as though the movie is being a little bit more truthful because it's being truthful about the artifice behind its creation. Um, And that's not to knock on movies that are kind of in the cinema verite style or that are you know, trying to be as, you know, true to life as possible. But here, this is a movie that is very much focused on the power of storytelling and on the power of um, heroes and their place in society. Like, we hold them up because we want to aspire to them, so they have to be larger than life. And here I think the movie is also playing with those ideas by making the action on screen feel a little bit larger than life and being upfront about the things that aren't necessarily going to be able to physically actually happen. I, I think it's a little bit difficult to ride a horse across the top of uh, you know, a fortress wall, for example, but the movie's going to do it anyway because it looks really cool. And because this is a movie about how we should you know, look up to people who are figures for justice in the face of injustice. Uh, Zorro is somebody who um, is basically like justice dressed in black and defying the authorities. And I think just the aesthetics of that and the way that that looks on screen, it really makes that daring do Feel more important and more vital because Zorro is so much larger than life. Both versions of him, the version of him that we get as the you know the the younger Anthony Hopkins character, and then uh, the younger character who is learning to fill that place and take up that mask in the form of Alejandro Morietta, played by Antonio Banderas.
0: Yeah, it, the movie wears it lightly too, and I think that's a lot of the key to this film's charm is that. There, there are kind of those archetypal things at play that, that you mentioned about the importance of justice, the importance of ideals, and the importance mm-hmm. of um, somebody who, like uh, De La Vega, uh, he is a noble person himself, and yet he dons the mask of Zoro to fight for the little guy. And mm-hmm. kind of how that does speak to something that's also important as well. But it also makes some room for moments where... Uh, Anthony Hopkins' older Zorro is speaking with Banderas' younger Zorro and he says some sort of like, you know, tossed off bit of movie philosophy that sounds very, very wise and circular. And Banderas just allows himself a little eye roll like, oh yeah, okay, that that's really helpful. And, and I think those little touches um, kind of... Uh, ground it in something where it is it's a it's a fun adventure. It deals with Im- with important themes and, and things that ca- can and should be taken seriously. But it takes them seriously only up to the point where uh, it, it can make sure that we aren't just completely blowing it all off, that we can become invested in the story without becoming overwhelmed by the moral questions of the justifications for revenge. Or some of these naughtier things that, in a movie that was more interested in being like a very serious-minded drama, it would have to deal with. But because it's a swashbuckler, it doesn't have to, and the audience can just enjoy it for what it is. And I think there's, I, I think there's a place for that as well. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I enjoy sitting down with this movie from time to time, just sort of reveling in that too.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, and the character of Zorro has his roots in pulp fiction from not. Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino, but like the original Pulp Fiction from the early 1900s as well. And so I think that um, to treat that character too seriously would almost be a betrayal of the character's roots. But the film does a good job, I think, of giving him a sense of interiority and thoughtfulness. Like the older Zorro, Anthony Hopkins' Zorro, has had a lot taken away from him. And we feel the weight of that loss Um, Especially as he's coming to terms with um, the things that he has to do in order to be able to avenge that loss and then also to enact justice on the people who are oppressing everybody else around him. Um, And there's this moment in the movie where we spend a little bit of time with Anthony Hopkins' Zorro before Antonio Banderas comes back on the scene where Anthony Hopkins is uh, standing kind of in the middle ground and in the foreground there is this line of candles in front of him. And um, De La Vega takes a drink and then pulls out a bullwhip and starts to snap the flames off the candles one by one. At the beginning of the shot, the candles are in focus. And then as he gets halfway down the line, The camera kind of does a a rack-focus pull, and it focuses on Zorro himself, on De La Vega, on Anthony Hopkins. And the thought and care that goes into planning a shot like that, it it looks very straightforward, but it's a very complex kind of shot to pull off, especially when you're dealing with additional lighting sources, Um, kind of gave me a lot of joy to watch just as a technical shot, but I feel like it also gave a little bit more grounding to de la vega's character he's not just you know a quippy action hero who suffers a lot of loss in order to motivate him into the story and then treats a lot of that loss with a lot of like tossed off one-liners this character is still dealing with a lot of that loss even up until this point and he's grappling with it even if he's not going to monologue about it and i just i really love that character touch
0: yeah, the the characters are are plausibly human. They they have the emotions. They they're not in full on action movie mode where everything can be shrugged off with a quip and a smirk. Um, they are affected by the the wounds of their past in ways that don't feel um, skin deep. They feel like they go deeper, and I think that's. A credit to the the performances by Hopkins and Banderas, especially, but also even in the villains, like Stuart Wilson, I think brings a lot of depth to the you know the main heavy Rafael Montero is this guy who is you know bad enough to round up a you know hundreds of slave labor to you know see his villainous plan enacted, and then to coldly try to murder them all, but mm-hmm. he's also human enough to you you really feel that he does desire to love uh, De La Vega's daughter as his own, that he does feel an attachment to that that goes beyond just his villainy. And I think that that extends to so many of these characters where, you know, they they are, you know, broad because they are Pulp Fiction heroes and villains, but they have recognizable touches in the performances that go a long way towards making them feel like flesh and blood people. And I think that's borne out in the way that Campbell directs the stunt and action sequences as well. There's not really any sort of Jedi sword play. There's nobody doing anything crazy. It's all plausibly stuff that somebody could do as a human being. And that invests, I think, even the action sequences with a lot of stakes because Zoro is just a guy, you know, he can be outnumbered, he can... Have things go wrong. He can't stop every sword thrust except by his his wits and uh, his improvisation. And I think that that's something that maybe isn't as uh, as much in vogue now with sort of the hyper polished John Wick style action, where everything is very intricate and fun <laughs> to watch, but it also never really feels like John Wick is really you know going to seriously have something bad happen to him.
1: He had to get that John Wick dig in there.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. That's my John Wick skeptic coming out. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. He does get dropped off a lot of buildings, to be fair. And uh, he gets up and keeps on trucking. And I get the sense that the characters in Mask of Zorro can take a hit, but it's going to have much more serious consequences for them, which I also appreciate because it does kind of lend a level of, if not realism, at the very least, verisimilitude. Um, You mentioned her very briefly, but I kind of want to talk about De La Vega's daughter, Elena, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones here, um, because I think that this character could have been handled any number of ways and most of them quite poorly. And where I think the script does her justice is it gives her a little bit more agency than just being a damsel in distress who's been locked up and has had her whole life essentially be a lie. Um, so I'm curious to know what you think about her as a character.
0: S- Zeta-Jones, I think, is sensational in in this movie. And if I'm not mistaken, this was her breakout role. This was kind mm-hmm. of the thing that shot her onto the, the map of stardom. And I think that you're right that um, she is... Her character does things beyond just be beautiful and be... Kind of the the object of pursuit for Banderas' character. She also she has to make choices. She is forced by uh, her situation to decide whether she is going to um, stick with the life of comfort that she's always known, or to step out and, and take a risk on uh, these these two figures, these two Zoros, I guess, her father and then her lover who. Uh, kind of. There's a different life that that represents, and it's not clear to her. And I think Zeta Jones's performance goes a long way towards letting that play out. I don't know that it's the most deeply ri- written character, but I think no. the way that yeah. she's played, um, she feels like she has a lot of a lot of fire to her, and I think that you know that that's something that the script tells us. But only Zeta-Jones could have actually given that to us. And so that's real credit to her performance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she is also, um, I think she gets to take part in one of the more exciting fight scenes within this movie as well. Um, so I guess for mm-hmm. just to back up a little bit for those who have not seen this movie, Elena is De La Vega's daughter, but she was kidnapped from him in infancy and raised by his rival. Um, under the impression that she was not adopted, that she she was de la vega's rival's actual daughter and so um, she gets the sense that something is amiss in her life um she's been accustomed to being raised as a noble woman so when her adoptive father don rafael montero returns to mexico with her she's under the impression that this is the first time that she's been on that country's shores. And yet she feels as though there's something kind of familiar about her own surroundings. And she keeps running into things that feel strangely familiar, even though she's being told actively that um, you couldn't have possibly met these people or smelled this smell or been in this place before because you weren't born here. And all of that is a lie that she has to try to fight her way through. And I appreciate that as a character, she's played as someone who is willing to be credulous about what other people are telling her, but she's going to take that with a grain of salt because she also trusts her own senses. And um, the moments where she first runs into Antonio Banderas as Zorro, when he's first starting out as his own adventurer, I think are pretty delightful because she has been told to be wary of characters like him and yet she gets the sense of adventure that he is inviting her on and she's curious about that and she's got that sense of curiosity and I think that the movie is willing to kind of entertain that sense of curiosity and and allow that to be a central part of her character but the way that Zeta-Jones plays it it's with a very light touch. She's interested, but she's not going to turn that into the only part of her personality. And so it's there's a little bit of subtlety in there that I appreciated quite a lot.
0: I feel like Campbell also shoots her like a like a matinee idol. Like he mm. he makes use of close ups a lot with with Zeta Jones in this movie, and you know besides her just being gorgeous in this in this film, it's also she's got a way of sort of looking off camera. Um, so she's got that that far off gaze, and she's got kind of this smile that she employs periodically throughout the film it's got kind of this quizzical edge to her as you can sort of see the wheels turning as she's trying to put together the pieces why does she feel like this world around her is so familiar why does she feel drawn to this particular person she doesn't know why but she knows something is there and i think that that's something that uh zeta jones and campbell as a director just he knows how to use her face and uh, the subtleties of her facial performance to, to really draw that out and and give her some notes that she might not have otherwise had.
1: She's in soft focus for a lot of that too. Like it's a noticeable softer focus, like a matinee idol would have been shot at the same time as well. She's also uh, a fighter, which I appreciated as well. Um, <laughs> so... Um, There is a trope of, you know, the strong female action hero who can kick things and that's what she's good at. Or the the strong female action hero who is particularly good at fighting and that's what makes her a worthy character. And that's something that I was a little bit worried that this movie was going to fall into. I don't think it quite gets there, but this movie also predates The Matrix by about a year so. Um, that trope hadn't been fully, you know, set in stone by this point, um, but Elena also gets to get her own fight scene, and uh, it's her facing off against Antonio Banderas's Zorro, and the two of them turn it into um, a flirtation, and so it's it's both a confrontation. Both of them are trying to suss each other out. He's trying to escape from. Elena's adoptive father's castle and she's trying to keep him there and the two of them have had sparks fly between them before this point but this is the moment where I think a lot of that kind of boils over and I appreciated that um The movie takes its time here, too, to give both of these characters a sword and give them a chance to spar, not just verbally, but with actual swords in order to be able to connect with each other and to demonstrate that these two are an actually good match for each other, too. Um, The choreography in this movie for all of the fight scenes is quite good, but I appreciated it here as well um, because it gives both of these characters, you know, the room and the space to breathe and to spar with each other.
0: Yeah, I I love all of the the sword fighting scenes in in this movie. Uh, that that scene between Zaya Jones and Banderas is, is a great example of kind of what movies are so good at. In that you know these characters have been around each other for maybe a grand total of forty eight hours. You know mm-hmm. that and, and they don't have a whole lot of you know history. They don't even have a whole lot of interaction. And yet the way that sword fight begins as one thing. And then becomes another thing over the course of the action sequence, I think is a great example of storytelling through action where by the end of it, you buy their romance because they've already fought it out between themselves and found one another to be to be full equals. And I think that that makes it enjoyable on top of just the the flirtatious charge that those performers bring to, to that scene because they, they bring it a lot. Bring a lot mm-hmm. of it.
1: Yeah, they do. And I believe it. Um, I think it would be really easy to mess something like that up as well. And here, because these two have really good chemistry with each other, I believe the sparring and I also believe the romance.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that that's kind of uh, what makes for a good swashbuckler is that you really you believe in it. It has conviction in itself and it kind of brings the audience along in that conviction as well. And, uh, you know, for, for all the artificiality, it really does kind of sweep you up. And it's something I'd like to see a lot more of. I I feel like we've not had much of it lately, but the pendulum can always swing back. Hopefully. Mm -hmm.
1: Here's hoping.
0: Well, uh, that'll do it for our watch list segment. Thanks Sarah for watching mask of Zorro. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I am looking forward to watching the movie that you've picked for next week's watchlist segment, because it's a movie that I've heard you talk about quite a bit, and we've got a very apt pairing for it next week.
1: Yeah, it's time for us to talk about vampire movies once again. It's been a little bit of a minute. It is time. I've been bottling up all of my energy so that we can talk about. For next week's Watchlist segment, one of my all-time favorite movies, not just one of my favorite vampire movies, one of my all-time favorite movies, it's Catherine Bigelow's 1987 film, Near Dark.
0: I cannot wait. We're going to be pairing that with uh, Renfield, the the new movie that features uh, Nicholas Holt as Renfield, but also Nicolas Cage as Dracula, which yes. seems like inspired casting. I'm hopeful that the the promise in the casting carries through to the actual movie itself.
1: Yeah, I'm really hoping for it. That one looks like it's going to be a little bit more comedic in tone, which will hopefully be a solid balance for Near Dark, which is a little bit admittedly on the grimmer side. But I'm willing to forgive it that because it also has pretty stellar casting, including Bill Paxton as one of the most terrifying vampires ever to grace the silver screen. Near Dark is a little bit difficult to find. It was actually on streaming last month and then just dropped off streaming. So if you have access to a library, I would recommend seeing if you can get a hold of it on disc. Um, And hopefully it'll be back on streaming. It tends to bounce on and off every couple of months. So keep an eye out there. And if you follow me on Twitter, I usually tend to yell about when Near Dark is available for more people to watch because I want everybody to watch this movie.
0: Well, you you heard it here, folks. Follow Sarah for all of your near-dark hollering needs. She's your source for that. And I'm I'm looking forward to catching up with this one for sure, especially knowing that it's not just a great vampire movie, but according to you, one of the great movies, period. So can't wait mm-hmm. to dig into it. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much, listeners, for tuning in. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan.
1: I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson.
0: And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse BOW's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.